Hello, my name is Sean Schaefer and welcome to the Citywide Wealth Manager podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Pietro Nichols, manager of the RM Alternative Income Fund. The strategy has a 42% allocation to infrastructure and 38% in real estate. It's made up of listed equities paired with infrastructure investment trusts and REITs. The fund has recovered from the market shock of last March and has gone on to return 3.1% over a year. But what are its prospects like for the future? Well, Pietro, thanks for joining me. Um, Perhaps you could start off by introducing what the Alternative Income Fund invests in, what it does. Uh, The Alternative Income Fund, or rather VTRM Alternative Income, was set up just under three years ago. The objectives of the fund are predominantly income with some capital growth. Um, And it it principally involves in investing kind of what I would call big structural themes. Um, And they involve things like socio-demographic change, disruptive real estate, and the kind of how technology is effectively changing real estate, um, and an infrastructure. And and that's really kind of the heart of it. So it's, it's typically either essential infrastructure type assets or it's real estate delivering delivering kind of essential services to society and then everything else in between of that basically. Sure well, well a couple of those sectors have obviously been hit pretty hard over the past year from the pandemic. Um, how did the fund navigate those those situations? I mean it's a really good question I guess you know there's two ways of answering it. I think there's the kind of the marketing spin which is you know um, oh well, you know, there was there, it, it, it performed well relative to its benchmarks, and I guess that is actually true. You know, when you when you look at the fund's performance over the calendar year, we were pretty much flat. I think we were off about twenty three basis points on the year, so we kind of met our capital to preservation objectives and our our income objectives. But I think what we saw as a major disappointment was just in the kind of the peak of the sell off in March. You know, there was this kind of correlation to one across pretty much all asset classes which I think was a bit of a disappointment for, for us. But, but more generally, you know, on a relative basis, it did, it did do what it said it was going to do, which was, you know, preserve capital. I mean, over a year, that, that's exactly what it did. Um, I think during March, you know, when there was just a lot of people looking for that liquidity, you know, there was obviously some great buying opportunities, but ultimately, you know, as a manager, you kind of have to balance the risks of, uh, redemption, subscriptions, and then obviously the investment performance and, and risk all over the top of that. Were there any holdings in the portfolio that caused a problem last year? I think the way I would, the way I would uh, answer this is, awesome, is, also, also, is almost in two ways, if I can. I think share price performance is one way of looking at, at, at holdings, and the other is the fundamental performance underlying that. And I'd say from a fundamental perspective, you know, a lot of the holdings in our portfolio were kind of isolated from from COVID, really because of the nature of what they were doing. Whether it's you know generating clean energy or providing some form of you know essential service to society, whether it's aged care facilities or or something similar. However, you know there are degrees of exposure. You know if you're invested in student accommodation, you you do have you know a fall in occupancy you know, potentially into the 60s. So those kind of things absolutely feed into a portfolio and its performance. Um, but overall, actually, the majority of the portfolio delivered on its target. And I would say less than 10% of the portfolio really actually, you know, um, under-delivered from a kind of a fundamental, perform- uh, fundamental perspective. 
One thing that's mentioned on your fact sheet is Siena Senior Living. Um, that seems to be a care, care home facility in Canada. Um, could you explain what, what the issue was there? Yeah, I mean, that's a new holding for us, actually. So this is part of, let's say, our, our third wave of recovery trade. So, you know, the way that we position the portfolio is obviously the immediate shock of COVID created value. So the first place you went to was kind of renewable energy assets. Uh, following that, we then went to these types of assets were actually where COVID was likely to act as a catalyst and make them outperform. So those types of assets we're talking about there are more your digital infrastructure assets, like your big, big box um, sheds and your data centers, et cetera. And then the third wave of kind of investments are, are names like um, SIA, the one you just mentioned, where ultimately they do have a degree of kind of, let's say, COVID beta exposure. And ultimately it's because Someone, so, you know, these these guys have been in business for forty years, and and they're focused around two key areas: age living and and senior living. You know, age living being more to do with let's say dementia and 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 palliative care and and residential care being senior living. And when when you can delay moving into a home, you know, that's typically what the family will do, especially if you know you've got COVID over weighing over a situation. So really, this is a business that actually had collected 99% of its rents during COVID. It has had a higher cost just dealing with the fact that you have to implement, you know, health and safety procedures, you know, PPE costs, et cetera, and just making sure residents are safe and, and just, you know, delays in, in occupancy. So those are the kind of things that affect those businesses. But now that we're kind of, we're moving past, let's say, the peak of the pandemic, and we're now looking at kind of a major vaccination rollout globally. The, this is where we now see pockets of value, whether we're looking at, you know, social kind of impact real estate like um, SIA, or whether we're looking at demand-based infrastructure, which is kind of linked to, you know, the growth of, uh, of an economy. Um, areas right now which have been suffering in particular, but as we can look forward 12 months now, they're likely to be booming areas of, uh, of the market. So, you know, these are, these are kind of portfolio positioning uh, holdings that we like. I wanted to look at the real estate exposure in the portfolio. You've, you've nearly got 40% to real estate. And obviously, the, the, you know, we've got things like uh, office space, retail space, student accommodation, which you, you mentioned earlier. Um, yes, the, the portfolio may have been okay um, in the short run, but aren't you a bit more concerned sort of looking out five years about some of these sectors? Um, you know, especially things like office space where companies are announcing that they're kind of paring down on office space. You've got loads of retailers closing down. Again, the issue of student accommodation will, will, will perhaps as, as many people be be going to university. There's, there's a lot in there. Um, what are your concerns? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, real estate is 40% of the portfolio, so it's something we spend a, a lot of time looking at. I'd say, you know, off the top, we don't really have any exposure to retail or offices whatsoever. Um, you know, I think if you if you kind of look through our holdings to our underlying, I think you would find that office and retail combined would be a rounding error, um, and they're kind of legacy holdings in in the portfolio. The, the key The key areas for us within real estate are, within what we would call kind of, let's say, social impact real estate. So that's everything from your nurseries to your student accommodation, as you said, to things like GP surgeries, dentists, et cetera, uh, to social housing, um, sheltered accommodation, PRS, 
and then at the other end, kind of, let's say, senior living and aged care. So what I would say about those specific sectors are they tend to be underpinned by local government or central government. I think you're absolutely right that, you know, student accommodation has been something, specifically in the UK, I would add, where there's been a lot of focus politically. And so, you know, that's where that's where kind of the crosshairs have been aimed. But if you look in Europe and you look at the peer group in Europe, you know, Euro- European um, student accommodation providers took a very different view. You know, they said to students, if you rent these apartments and these rooms, you will you will have to pay for the year. And so they've actually sailed through with occupancies in the high 90s, despite actually students not necessarily being there. So I think there's a there's a moral um, discussion there that I think the UK market has taken on one side and the European market's taken on another. And that's, you know, that's, that's the way it is. I'd say the other area that we're really focused on within real estate is actually what I call disruptive real estate. And, you know, sometimes I call it a digital infrastructure. It just depends, I guess, on the mood. But, but really what I'm talking about there are areas that, you know, have massively benefited from COVID, but they've been massively benefiting from a structural change over the last two decades. So things like, you know, your Amazon effect, where, you know, the, the digitization of pretty much every single industry in some form is creating a different type of need for real estate. So you no longer necessarily need the high street in the same way or shopping malls in the same way. But instead, you, you need large logistics warehouses and last mile warehouses. So you're just shifting where the focus of, of uh, commercial real estate sits. And then I guess the other two areas, one is rapidly emerging and it's just about to kind of hit the market in, in Europe, which is kind of what we would call the type, tower codes or the fiber code type assets. And, you know, you've had a Cordiant launch an investment trust just very recently. Uh, Triple Point um, is looking to raise 400 million for DS9, which is a, which is another digital infrastructure entity. And Vodafone spinning off its, its uh, tower code business. And what those assets effectively do are, uh, um, you know, they carry the mobile phone signals. So pretty much every single communication these days that people are transacting, you know, is going through some form of mobile network. And so, you know, they're kind of mission critical assets. Yeah, I mean, I think so- something on that, on that point is that, y- are, are we blurring the lines here between your real estate portion of the portfolio and the infrastructure portion of the portfolio what, what, you know if we're talking about sort of Vodafone telephone masks um, etc does that not kind of go, go under the infrastructure bound Michael? I think you've got you've hit some you've hit a very interesting nail on the head there because you know I would say I'm a bit of a purist in some ways in that if I'm if I'm investing in a REIT I will call that a real estate um, a real estate investment but but you are correct in that there is a very blurred line. I think you could argue, if you look at the majority of our portfolio, that you could classify most of it within some form of infrastructure. But likewise, I think it all depends on the payment mechanics. You know, if you have things that resemble commercial contracts rather than government, you know, um, availability-based contracts, then you can kind of say, well, is it infrastructure or is it just kind of commercial uh, investment? And so I think from our perspective, we just like to be very transparent with investors. That's to, if we're investing in a REIT, it's a real estate holding. If we're investing in uh, something else that's not a REIT, it will likely fit in category A, B, or C. Um, but, but I agree with you entirely. I think most of them, you could argue, are mission-critical assets. Data centers, which is another one, 
within our kind of disruptive real estate team. You know, you actually don't you don't measure data centers in square foot. You measure them in megawatt hours because it's all about the energy consumption that they consume. So, it, it, you know, that's another metric that entire real estate doesn't even use square footage for. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting things here, which, you know, to us, data centers now are absolutely mission critical. You know, most people couldn't have done their, their, carried on their business, you know, over the last 12 months if it wasn't for data centers indirectly, whether it's hosting Zoom calls, cloud-based software, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, I think that follows on to, to where you are seeing the biggest opportunities at the moment in infrastructure. Obviously, you're, you're talking about the digital aspect of it, data centers. What are the, going to be the sort of key winners over the next couple of years? That's a really good question. I would say availability. So, so as I said, I'm a bit of a purist. So the way that we think about infrastructure is based on what's called the payment mechanism. So availability-based infrastructure is those types of assets that are highly political sensitive. You know, so if you cast your mind back a few years when uh, we had Labour and the, the Conservatives kind of jostling for power um, and the threats of nationalisation, those types of assets are always in the crosshairs because they can be nationalised or, or threatened to be. Um, but that's your schools and hospitals, those types of things. But ultimately, to, to get paid there, you just need to be, they just need to be available. In the middle ground, you've got renewable energy, and we call that volume-based infrastructure, you know, something in, something out. So some hits the panel money pops out, so to speak, you know, in terms of power purchase agreements. And then the final is demand-based infrastructure where there are no government subsidies. Typically, it's the least politically sensitive, albeit unless it's a trophy asset like a heat or airport. Um, but ultimately, they are linked to GDP. So if you've got a, you know, a recession, you're not likely to be doing terribly well with those types of assets. So if I, if I kind of take a step back now and say, okay, where have we been over the last 12 months and where are we likely to go from there? Availability-based infrastructure is obviously now kind of fully valued. I think we've obviously got the kind of reflation trade right now running through the markets pretty, pretty chaotically. And obviously that kind of leads you to, well, if we are seeing a recovery, it's likely to you know, see a growth in GDP. And so that would take you into demand-based infrastructure. You know, things like shipping, things like um, airports, etc. Anything where there's a, a cyclicality to the de- demand profile is likely to do much better over the next kind of, you know, 12 to 36 months. And, and how much of the portfolio is allocated to that cyclicality? At the moment, very, very little. Like you're, you're talking about 2%. I'd say though, over the next you know, three to six months in our portfolio, that's the area of repositioning that we're likely to go through where we'll be taking profits, let's say, from those assets within the availability-based infrastructure segment where we've, you know, we've made some attractive returns and likewise in some of our real estate segment where we've made attractive returns and then reinvesting that into the demand-based area where you'll see a lot of operational leverage and and uh, cyclicality. And, and whilst 10% might not sound a lot, you know, we're looking for much higher returns in that small segment. So that's how you, you know, that's how we kind of construct our portfolio. You mentioned an allocation there to renewable energy. Obviously, a lot of money has gone into renewable energy of late. Um, are you concerned about that? And and I think maybe one of the criticisms is that it seems renewable energy is often sort of propped up by governments. I mean, is it profitable in its own right? I mean, I really generally as a you know, as a, a career kind of infrastructure person for, say, five years prior to prior to RM, 
you know, we, 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 we really, really invested in this space as a business. And, and what I would say is there's been a lot of money flow into infrastructure, uh, into renewables. And do I think it's fairly valued? I, you know, it depends how you look at it. I actually think when you've got half your money from coming from government subsidy and the other half coming from, you know, uh, investment grade counterparty, I almost would argue it'd be un- it's undervalued. But I think, you know, it, they do offer relatively attractive returns. You know, I think anyone who can earn five or six percent with with very little uh, variability from a, a, an operational performance perspective, I think it's a it's a very good place to be. But I I would say though that because it's still a growing area and we are moving from subsidised regimes now to unsubsidised regimes, and the levelised cost of power makes sense to do that, which is a great thing. It, it kind of reinforces why subsidies were there in the first place. I, I, I think whilst you might you might see the risk profile of some of these uh, investment trusts change over tr- over time, generally speaking, renewable energy is, is a very solid investable asset class or subset of an asset class that I think you know is here to stay, and you know we still like it. But I, I would definitely say that being an active manager, being able to kind of say, okay, when something's fully valued, it's time to take some profits because either the, the trust is going to grow, they're going to raise more money, et cetera, and then reinvesting it in, let's say, you know, ones that are kind of more undervalued at a certain point in time, you know, makes a lot of sense. I mean, you mentioned there that if, if there's a reversal of those government subsidies, um, I mean, could you still get those 5 to 6% yields on renewable energy, if that's the case? Um, I, when I say, remo- I mean, they would never, you, in the UK, you wouldn't really have a removal of the any existing subsidies because we don't have retrospective legislation here but 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 in terms of new new business going forward can do they make economic sense to to build those assets yeah, absolutely yes i mean it depends on geographies as well though you know so you're more likely to see lots of offshore wind where you can get higher resource factors you know if it's solar you're more likely to see those in in countries with higher radiation um, and, and, and modest temperatures because obviously you've got you know, just a better resource there. But, but I, then I think things like battery storage, you know, will obviously help. And, and I do generally think if you speak to a national grid, you'll realize that we do need to move to a more decentralized system. Um, and things like batteries, et cetera, will play a role in that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it absolutely makes sense now. And I think when you kind of look at, you know, gas prices and, and, um, you know, other forms of electrical generation, Actually, now renewable stands on its own two feet without the need for for um, significant subsidies. What about the debt portion of the portfolio? Could you explain what the funds invested in there? Yeah, I mean the debt the debt portion of the portfolio, or the th- let's say the theory behind it, was really to just invest in the same areas that we invest in on the equity side, but just in a more senior part of the capital structure. So investing in senior secured bonds, for example. And the reason for that is just generally speaking you know, bonds tend to exhibit lower volatility, especially if they're short duration instruments. And so from our perspective, that was kind of, let's say, the theory. We only have around just under 20% of the portfolio investing invested in um, in debt now. Um, it was significantly higher pre-COVID, um, but I think because it performed in line with the equity markets, we felt it, it really didn't deserve the same uh, allocation. Um, but broadly speaking, you know, there are times when you just see pockets of value in the, in the, 
in the senior bond uh, in the bond markets that you just don't see in the equity markets and vice versa. And there's been times where we've been able to invest in um, healthcare uh, bonds or uh, telecom infrastructure asset in bonds where they've yielded higher than the equity and they've ranked ahead of the equity. So those kind of those those scenarios shouldn't actually happen on a regular basis. And I think it's the, the fact that we have that mandate that can look across both of those segments um, gives us a bit of an edge because at times it means we can control risk in a better way in more normal market conditions. But it also means we can be slightly more opportunistic when it comes to you know, where that value is and do we want to earn a, a contracted return to a bond or do we, do we want to look at you know, a dividend profile with potentially some upside um, over, the, over that same period. So it's just all about kind of, you know, balancing risk and, and return there. Well, Pietro, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, John. <laughs>